That is verging on sin. <laughs> I didn't say whose. <laughs> Tonight, if you turn to Acts chapter 17, as we continue, continue our study here in the book of Acts, as we're well on our journey here in the third missionary adventure of the Apostle Paul. And tonight, as we saw him last week, as he had this amazing experience in Philippi with the Philippian jailer and his family, that great conversion experience, they move on about a 100 miles and go to Thessalonica, the book that we are studying on Sundays. Uh, we're, we're nearly finished with the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, this incredibly young church, vibrant church, this church that got it. Uh, Paul is going to leave that city now, and we find him moving on to Berea, and we'll pick up tonight in verse 10. And as he moves on, remember where we left him, and, and this really is the ministry. As I shared with you last week, you kind of got Salvation 101, you know, sharing the gospel in a crazy situation. What does it really take for someone to come to the Lord Jesus Christ? And as I often get asked the question, people you know, will add all kinds of things to that believing. Jesus himself said, it is sufficient that you believe. And the reason that I always tell people, if you add anything to that proposition with regard to salvation, then you have made it faith plus something. And whether that's faith plus baptism or faith plus works, or faith plus church membership, or faith plus understanding Greek or Hebrew, or faith plus anything, then you have made salvation not by faith, not by grace, but you've made it some kind of work. And people often say, well, you know, Scripture says that we're supposed to be baptized. You should be believe and be baptized. I would remind you that there are a multiplicity of times in Scripture where we have people that we know absolutely, unequivocally were saved and they were not baptized. Chief among them, Jesus himself, led to a saving knowledge on the cross. And it was the thief who believed. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was not baptized. He was nailed on Calvary's cross on the one of the three uh, with Jesus. And he went home to be with Jesus because Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so baptism is not essential to salvation. Should we be baptized? Yes, it's signifying that we identify with the birth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a public statement of that which has happened internally, but it is not essential to salvation. So we now come to this group of people that we left Thessalonica with, Paul's countrymen. And if you remember, most of them were a little bit upset. Some of the Jews in Thessalonica believed, but a vast majority of them apparently did not. And it appears, uh, just like the Lord Jesus has missionaries, the enemy also has missionaries. And we meet a few of them tonight. These guys from Thessalonica travel the 45 miles that it is or so to Berea, and they begin to stir up all kinds of trouble, so much so that Paul will actually leave and he's going to go to Athens, and that will be our focus tonight, actually will be Athens. Uh, the center then of a dying culture, the center then of a culture that for 400 years had been the seat of academia, had been the place of philosophy, the home of Plato and Socrates and Epimedes and all of these great philosophers, and we'll look at some of those tonight. 
the home of the Stoics and the Epicureans, the Hedonists, so all of those people. Paul is going to go now, and he's going to be with this group of people that if ever there were a place that you could say it would be like going to Oxford or to Harvard and sitting down there with a bunch of people who don't know the Lord, who are absolutely atheistic, who have no desire for the things of God, but love to debate, that's where Paul's going to go. He's going to go to Athens. And so tonight, before we get into this part of Scripture, let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, as we again find ourselves in need of your touch tonight, and Lord, just desire that you would speak to us. Lord, through your word, you authored this. You penned these words. You caused those holy men of old to write as the author Luke, the human writer of these words, Lord, penned these things. It was your Holy Spirit that told him what to write. And so we believe this is your inerrant word. We pray now that you'd use it, Lord, to expand our horizons, to get our minds off of the things of the earth and onto those things which are heavenly. Bless us as we study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 10 here in Acts 17, and then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And so they are going to leave Philippi. They're going to leave Thessalonica. They've now left Thessalonica. They're heading to Berea, a relatively small town. Uh, when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now we've seen that. This is the fourth time that we've seen Paul show up in a city and go into the synagogue of the Jews. A great place to start, a place that he would have some camaraderie, a place that he could use his uh, time as a Pharisee to speak very authoritatively by the Old Testament to open the door to bring the gospel of grace. And so he uses what he has. Never forget that God wants to use who you are, what you are, how he made you, your life experience, everything about you to be able to speak to people. And he uniquely gifts each one of you to do that. And as I've shared with you so many times, you all actually have very specific callings upon your life and very specific people that you alone of all of humanity are really going to be most effective in reaching certain people. They may be your friends, may be your neighbors, may be parts of your family. It may be those that you're engaged in intellectual things with or a workplace or something, but you have been uniquely called by God and given a set of gifts that you can use in that situation. And Paul is using his. Verse 11, he goes on. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. That's a better way of saying he, he had a little easier time. It, it wasn't quite as difficult. Thessalonica was a hard city. Berea, we're going to find out, is a place where there's already some work of the Lord going on. And, and in fact, we're going to find that they were already studying the Old Testament scriptures. They had a hunger for the things of God. This is a great time to, to step into a, a time of ministry is when the ground's already been prepared somehow. Uh, very often I almost feel guilty. I'll be invited to a conference or, you know, some youth event and here are these poor youth pastors have been struggling with, you know, all these kids year long and maybe for years and finally get them to come to camp and, you know, I get the pleasure of delivering maybe a message and all of a sudden, you know, they all give their life to Jesus. That's kind of the place here that Paul's going to enter into. They were ready to receive the word of the Lord. They had been even preparing themselves, the Holy Spirit speaking. And so they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. What a wonderful picture this is 
of how we really all ought to be. When you hear the word Berean, it is something that you as a member of the body of Christ should delight to be. Someone who picks up the word yourself and studies it for yourself to check and see if these things are so. Uh, You've heard me numerous times say, go to the word yourself, read it yourself, study it yourself. It, It is God's holy, infallible word. He will speak to you through it. But you have to study it. You have to receive it. It actually carries a connotation here with gladness. In other words, I want to hear what you want to say, Lord. And that's where these Bereans were. They, they wanted with all readiness to hear the things of the Lord. And therefore, notice what it says. No conflict, not a whole lot going on. Many of them believed. And also not a few of the Greeks and prominent women as also men. So here in the Jewish synagogue, they had been studying the Old Testament scriptures. They were looking for the Messiah. The word of the grace of God comes to them and they get saved. And the people around them also because they had a sphere of influence, and they used it for the things of God. Very important message for us. And he goes on now, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came and stirred up the crowds. Satan has his emissaries. Satan sends his missionaries. And very often they're quite ferocious in how they function. Here these men, imagine this was not a journey like we would make today. 45 miles is a long way when you're doing it by foot or possibly on a donkey. Uh, Maybe if you happen to be near a body of water, you might be able to sail part of it or get moved some way other than your own feet. But this was a significant journey, probably three to four days at, at the very least, maybe a week depending on the path of travel. And so... They make this is so serious to them. uh, Never underestimate how much effort Satan is going to put in thwarting the plans of God. Uh, That's why your friends and family, when you share the gospel with them, and they're right there on the edge. The next thing you find out is that they are going to marry some atheist. The next thing you find out is they're going to some school where they're going to be taught secular humanism. The next thing you find out, the enemy of God has planted somebody in their dorm room or as their next-door neighbor that absolutely hates God's people. It's the way Satan works. He tries to pick off those who have yet to make a commitment to the Lord. And so that was the case here. And so, as he stirred up the crowds, by this time, Paul's got a name. And there's an important thing here. Paul has become known as the guy who preaches the gospel of Christ. And because of that, he now is in more danger every time he does it. Because the enemy's plans are getting greater and greater. One of the things that you'll hear me say is the moment you go into ministry, you paint a target someplace on your body that Satan is going to shoot at. And this is the truth. The more you desire to serve the Lord, the more you do for the Lord, the more you are going to get shot at. The more people are going to come against you, the more the enemy is going to stir up trouble. Because if there's one thing the enemy can't stand, that's another person going to heaven. So the moment you endeavor to speak the word of the Lord, the moment you endeavor to share your faith in Christ, the moment you try and do anything effective for the cause of the gospel, you can pretty much count on there being at least some adversity that's going to come your way. I have all kinds of stories that I could share with you, you know, being uh, driving down the road. I I have been so many times 
going to go do something for the Lord where I've just mysteriously, I got brand new tires and I've got one that's flat. Uh, you know, those types of things where the enemy's just picking at you, trying to see if he can thwart that work of God. And so, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the city, but both Silas and Timothy remained there so that those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, and they departed. And so Paul now makes this journey, and he he goes to meet with this group of people uh, from having the word, uh, in essence, received with gladness. Now he's in Athens, and we make this tremendous uh, transition. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15 says this, regarding that work that goes on behind the scenes to thwart what God's doing. It says there in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 11, For such are false prophets, they're deceitful workers, they transform themselves into the apostles of Christ. For no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. And therefore it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end is according to their works. Whenever God is at work, the enemy is going to send somebody who looks like they're just doing a really good thing. It comes very often as people who are extremely intelligent. It comes very often as people of means. It comes very often as people who have it all together, people that everyone would want to emulate. You know, Satan is not stupid. And I think sometimes the body of Christ is ignorant in this area. We kind of almost believe that Satan is kind of like the cartoon character. You know, he's just evil and he has horns and he's got a forked tail and he wanders around. Oh, oh, that's the devil. Now, the enemy doesn't work that way. Uh, He works through very brilliant means and he uses every means at his disposal. And so now we're going to see as Paul uh, is here in Athens, the seat of world intellectualism. It is a waning culture. Uh, It's a culture that at the time had already been replaced by the Roman world, but still very powerful. And it was the seat, in essence, of knowledge. At the time, Rome ruled the world, but it was said at the time that Greece ruled the minds of man. And so here he's in this intellectual center, and pick up now in verse 16. And now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. This is one of those things that is so wonderful. If you're pondering the work of the Lord, if you're thinking about, you know, God, what do you want to do with me? I want to encourage you to go to that place that you believe God wants you to do, do that work in, and stay there and see if he doesn't speak to you. And that's exactly what happened to Paul here. He's waiting. He's actually waiting for his friends to get here. And and at the same time, he's waiting on the Lord. And as he waits on the Lord, all of a sudden, he is stirred into action. He can't sit around anymore. He takes a look at the world around him and says, I'm not sitting here any longer. The guys aren't here yet, but I'm going to do what God's called me to do. And notice what happens to him. The city's given over to idols. And he realizes he has the answer for the city that's given over to idols. He has the answer to the questions that the Epicureans and the Stoics have been asking. He has the answer for the philosophy that had come passed down from Plato to Aristotle to Socrates. And and here are these men of great learning, uh, some of the most brilliant philosophers that have ever walked the face of the earth, uh, preceded Paul in this city. 
And now he realizes that the end of all of that intellectualism, the end of all of that humanism, the end of all of that stoicism, the Epicurean thought processes, the hedonistic thought processes, all of the things that mankind had wrestled with for over 400 years with regard to Greek thought, weren't providing any answers. And Paul had the answer. And therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Notice where he goes again. Finds the Jewish synagogue, grabs the first group that he can. He gets a few adversaries, but he also picks up a few uh, fellow laborers in the battlefield when he does this, because undoubtedly some of them came to the Lord. And so he reasoned there with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. And notice what he does next. And sometimes people ask, well, you know, why do you go down to the pier? Or why do you go down to the streets in San Bernardino? Or why, you know, people are busy about their things and it's inconvenient. That's part of the process of reaching people for the Lord. Because if you're waiting for them to come to you, or if you're waiting for them to show up at a crusade, or if you're waiting for them to come to church, you may wait so long that they perish eternally. And sometimes you need to take the battle to the people. And this was the Apostle Paul's way of, of getting to the hearts of people. And so he goes to the Agora, the marketplace, daily with those who happen to be there. And so he's not, he doesn't set up a tent. Uh, he doesn't have a giant crusade. You know, it isn't in flashing lights. The great Apostle Paul will be here at 5.30 this afternoon with a couple of worship bands. He simply goes down and begins to talk to people in the marketplace about what they think, what they believe. What do you, how do you think we got here? Can I share with you this is still extremely effective? You, you may not walk up to somebody you work with and go, well, what do you think about Jesus? That may not be initially a, a way that's going to get you very far. But you can ask them, how do you think the world got here? What do you think is the great purpose in life? Why do you think we are even on this planet? Is this life that we live meaningful or meaningless? Do we have any purpose beyond what evolution teaches that we're just highly evolved animals. You get the picture? You see, those types of questions stimulate people's minds to actually want to talk about that subject. And, of course, the end of that subject is the Creator God. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul literally bait these guys in to beginning to talk about this unknown God that they have in essence, created an altar to. They don't know who he is, but just in case they missed one, it's not Zeus, it's not Aphrodite, it's not, you know, Neptune or any one of the Greek gods, but they want to cover all their bases so they have an altar set up, a niche set up there in the wall to the unknown god, just in case they miss one. And so here he begins as he reasons with them, and they're there then were certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who encountered him, and they said, what does this babbler want to say? So he's talking about all kinds of stuff having to do with the Lord. And they're mocking him. That's in essence what it is. And I can tell you, when you go to college campuses and you, you begin to speak of the things of God, um, you're going to get called worse than a babbler. Uh, you, you'll, you'll be talked down to and talked over and shouted down and called ignorant and, and a whole bunch of other things that we dare not repeat here. 
People will begin, oh, well, you believe in God. That's just foolish. You know, of course, the universe is 13.7 billion years old. That's the only explanation. Of course, Darwinian evolution is the only way to explain all of human life. Uh, Of course, these things are true. You know, these are proven sciences. And the simple fact of the matter is, is they're not proven sciences. They are nothing more than guesses, somewhat educated in many cases, and in other cases, they're just flat-out guesses. I can tell you there wasn't anybody around 13.7 billion years ago at the beginning of the Big Bang. They don't know what happened. They weren't there. I can also tell you that no one has ever seen a single transitional life form. Not one. There is not one in the fossil record, period, of any kind. So if we all transition from blue-green algae into single-celled types of life and then ultimately into multi-celled life, into you know small creatures that crawled out of the ocean, ultimately fishes to lizards to horses to monkeys to man, if that happened, then they got a lot of explaining to do because there's nothing left of all of those transitions. They don't exist, and yet all the individual species that they supposedly came from are all still there. So it must have happened overnight. One night you were a monkey, the next day you were a man. Now that's what I look like in the morning, but it's not, (laughs) biologically doesn't happen. So you can talk to people about these things. I love the way Paul handles this particular passage. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. In other words, they couldn't quite figure out exactly what he was talking about. They just knew that what he said was actually seemingly pretty interesting because you notice who it attracted. The Epicureans and the Stoics. The two basic trains of Greek philosophy at the time were the Epicureans and the Stoics. And so they're interested Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the Greeks did not believe in resurrection, but they did believe to some degree in an eternal state. And so if you died, you would end up going to Hades, and you would pay him a few coins, and you'd cross the river Styx and get to wherever you were supposed to go. So they believed in some type of afterlife. But this whole resurrection thing? Mm Mm-mm. So Paul's talking to him about the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, this is not so much a place, though it is a place, as it is a group of people. And at the time, this particular group of people met on what in Roman times was Mars Hill. It's actually the Areopagus. You can go there today. There is actually a plaque on that piece of rock. It's a natural amphitheater. But it was, in essence, the civil court of the day. It was a place where people went, and they discussed civil matters to come to a group of people that were philosophers who would then hear the matter. They would discuss it amongst themselves and hand down a verdict. And so they took them, in essence, to the city court. And said, this guy is proclaiming these things. What do you think? Now, notice what happens here. He said, may we know what this new doctrine is that you speak? Because they understood what was going on with the Epicureans and the Hedonists and all those people. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But this is a new thing. You're talking about this Jesus guy having been raised from the dead. Now, we don't know anything about this. And so he says, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. 
Now, for 400 years, really since Plato opened his school, passed that on to Aristotle, who passed it on to Socrates and Epimedes and all these philosophers that had come ever since, many of whom still there today, at least in the historical line of these great philosophers, were saying, we've never heard this before. And their whole thing was, we want to learn something new. We need to know something new. And this guy may know something new. So they're all like, okay, well, listen to him. Or here he begins. You're bringing something strange to our, our ears, and therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all Athenians and all foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or hear some new thing. They had hashed over the Greek gods, and they had hashed over the Epicurean way of life, and the Stoic way of life, and the hedonistic way of life, at infinitum, at nauseum, to where everybody kind of believed everything. There wasn't any new thing. Oh, that's Epicurean. Oh, that's hedonistic. Oh, you know, that's Stoic. That's all these basic philosophies. And so, here now, Paul comes with, you mean there's not only an afterlife, but you can be dead and be raised again? This is a new thing. So he uses this open door, and then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said to them, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And that was extremely true. That's why there were all of these niches and these little places of worship. As he walks by, they're, they're there. He says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. Now, you and I, when we look at today Greek statuary, and you can go to any great museum in the world, and you are going to find examples of Greek statuary. It is the most magnificent human, especially statuary, ever created on the face of the earth. Same thing with many of the paintings. We still look at the works of some of the Roman and the Greek painters of the time. Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, all these guys of that period of time. Well, the Greeks had statuary down to a science. You can look at, you can still see those. You can go see, they're ostensibly look like pictures of Socrates and of Plato. They're so well carved that that's, that's him. And I guarantee you, if we find him someplace, if he made it to heaven, I doubt he did. But if you, he's going to look like the marble carving. He's going he's to have that face. And so as he's walking by, he's looking at all these things. He's got Zeus, and he's got Athena, and he's got Aphrodite, and Mercury, and all of these gods and little altars to each one of them. Notice what happens. He says, and I even found an altar with the inscription, To the Unknown God. It's kind of like the just-in-case we missed one. We don't want anybody left out because we are so open-minded, we are so fair, we are so broad in our thinking that just in case someone comes up with one we haven't heard of, this can be his altar. Paul seizes the moment. He says, and therefore, the one to whom you worship without knowing, the unknown God, him I proclaim to you. And he's going to go on now, and he's going to begin to proclaim this unknown God to these guys who were standing around going, okay, who is this? You see, Greek was a culture of cultured paganism, basically. Very cultured paganism is the way to look at it. 
Now, they wouldn't have thought that. They would have thought that their minds were so enlightened that this was actually the way it is in most of the world. And if you were anybody and you had any brains in your head, you believed as the Greeks did. If you believed in the Roman gods, well, they were kind of lesser gods. So the Greeks thought they had it made. Matter of fact, in, in his great piece on this period of time, the great newspaper columnist Franklin P. Adams said he defined Greek philosophy as unintelligible answers to unsolvable problems. They, they love to debate things to, you know, okay, well, we'll speak a bunch of words and we'll make it so confusing that everybody will think we're smart. That was basically the way it went down. And so uh, that cultured paganism swept through most everything that they did. And so as they began to talk, uh, they, they eventually came to the conclusion that what they believed was actually science. And so you have these different trains of thought, and the two that are mentioned here are the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans, we actually still use that word when we talk about Epicurean delights. We're usually talking about fine living, right? Or wine and food and chocolate-dipped strawberries and... You know, things that we shouldn't talk about right now, but they, they were the existentialists of the day. And, and so everything had a meaning to it if you discussed it deep enough. They were kind of like in the European Renaissance, the Bohemians. You know, they would stare at something and, and somehow it would become more meaningful and valuable. And if you languished over a meal for long periods of time, somehow you, you absorbed more from it, those types of things. And so it was a love of fine living. But the crazy thing was, is they were largely materialists and atheists at the same time. So they basically worshipped stuff. And so an Epicurean would look at this, well, if it doesn't you know, bring me any new stuff, and, and, and if I look at this and it has anything to do with God, then forget it. I don't want to talk about it. And so the Epicureans are represented there. In essence, their number one goal was pleasure. They wanted to enjoy everything. They wanted the finest of everything. If there was some new experience, they wanted it. If there was something material to have, they had to have it. You know, they were the lifestyles of the rich and famous Greek style. Okay, that, that was them. And on the other side, you had the Stoics. And the Stoics and the Epicureans basically fought one another for control over the Greek mindset. The Stoics were ostensibly the opposite. They believed that there was a God, but that God was pretty much everything. And God was in everything. They were pantheists. They pretty much believed in every kind of God that you... That was probably their unknown God altar. The Stoics likely carved that. Because we don't want to leave anything out. We don't really know for sure. There is no absolutes in the world. Sounds like our world today, right? So you got, you got part of the people that are after material goods and just pleasure. You got the other part. There's no possible way that anything's absolute. And you got to consider everything. We got to make sure that we don't offend anybody. And we got to go with, with the popular view. And so we'll just hear all the arguments. The Stoics ultimately, uh, would, would have the other side of the, the, the coin. So as the Epicureans are saying, well, let's enjoy life, the, the Stoics were saying, you have to endure life. You know, because it's all about what you think. It's all about what you make it. And so these guys are, in essence, dueling at this time on the Oropagus. 
Now, the Oropagus was actually a council of elders. Pretty typically, they had some legal ability to pronounce sentence on people. So they're, in essence, in appeals court, sitting here with all of these brilliant people, and they have their arms folded. They're staring at the Apostle Paul, and he's talking about this guy, Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, who happens to be, he says, is the guy who's the altar to the unknown God. It's him. So they begin to talk about this, and notice that Paul begins in the marketplace. He does that, I believe, intentionally to kind of stir up a little bit of traffic coming his way, and eventually he ends up in the seats of power. And sometimes that's how you have to work. you got to start small and let God work you up to the, to the big time, so to speak. And so he begins this defense of the gospel. Notice what he says, transitioning now from verse 23 Here is this altar to the unknown God. Him I proclaim to you. I know him. Notice what he says in verse 24. He begins to now describe this God. And this is one of those things. Now imagine, in our day and time, you could call it, you know, similar to walking into the halls of academia and sitting down in a philosophy class or perhaps sitting down in a class in biological sciences or, or perhaps chemistry and discussing the origins of life. Cosmology, cosmogony. Seeing they're talking about how, how did we get here? Why are we here? What's the purpose? How come mankind is here at all? I mean, it really makes no sense. How did the human eye evolve? You know, we think about things like that. Have you ever wondered about the human eye? Human eye is pretty amazing because it is a concave mirror. The, the back side of it is concave, okay? So it should, if you've ever looked in a concave mirror, guess what the image does? It's upside down, right? Ever wondered how, you, how come your eye sees things upside down, transmits it right side up to the rest of your brain, and it crosses over from one side to the other while it does it? There's all kinds of things like that. And so Paul's starting to talk to him. He says, well, you guys have been pondering this stuff for 400 years. Let me tell you about the unknown God. Because you haven't quite figured it all out yet in all your argumentation. He describes him, verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it. Do you realize how in the face that would be to the Greeks? Because they believed, if they believed in gods, they didn't believe in one, generally speaking, they believed in many. They were pantheistic or they were atheistic. One of the two. In other words, many gods or no god at all. And he says, I know the one God. And then he describes this one God as having made everything. Since he is Lord of heaven and of earth. So there goes all the Greek gods. Because the Greek gods lived on Mount Olympus. Matter of fact, they could almost see Mount Olympus from this city. And so as they're looking that direction, they're going, are you trying to tell me that this God actually lives above the Greek gods on Mount Olympus? That's what he's telling them. He's saying everything you've ever thought about all of your gods, you know, no, Zeus actually is not in charge. Neptune's not in charge of the sea. doesn't work that way. Aphrodite, you know, forget that whole thing. Archimedes, all these great heroes you have, no, there's a guy that's above them who does not dwell in temples made with hands. So here all this effort, time that's been put into Greek mythology as we all know it, that they at the time believed was actual fact, was pagan. And he says there's another God, and that God's above these guys. Basically all of us ask the same questions that those Greeks were probably asking. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? 
Science attempts to answer that question to some degree or those questions. Philosophy wrestles with part of that whole dilemma. And really it's only faith in Christ Jesus that answers all three at the same time. Begins to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. You see the Epicureans who were atheists said that everything was basically just matter. was always matter. There's nothing eternal. Uh, everything at the time, they would have probably agreed with the laws of thermodynamics that everything tends towards decay. You know, eventually that great temple is going to fall down. We'll have to rebuild it. They would have thought all those things. The Stoics were saying, well, there's kind of a spirit in everything, and there's a God in everything, and kind of like Al Gore, basically. <laughs> Everything's God. They would have been going. So they're fighting each other. Their philosophies don't agree. So they would have thought God didn't create everything because there wasn't just one. He probably just organized matter into some kind of, you know, out of chaos into something wonderful. kind of sounds like the way a lot of people think today. There was a big bang. There was a seed of the universe, and it exploded, and nothing became something and got much more vast and began to speed up, and now it's slowing down and can try all these things that people think about today. They were thinking some of those things likely then. So I wonder how the council members reacted, as Paul says. See that temple up there on the Acropolis? Because they're over on the Oropagus, which is about 400 yards away, slightly north and east. It's a lower hill, and the Acropolis is over on another hill, and that Acropolis is the famous Acropolis that you see with the Temple of Diana and all those things on top of it. He's probably pointing over and goes, the, the, the gods you think live over in that thing? They're a bunch of hooey. Um, they're not actually there. That's a figment of your imagination, and you guys actually aren't all that bright, is basically what he was saying. Several shrines. One of them dedicated to the goddess Athena herself, after whom is named the city that they're sitting in. He's like totally disrespecting everything they think. Notice what he does next. First he says, there is a creator God, and he created everything. Didn't happen by random chance. It's not the process of evolution. You see, putting it in a modern context, you can see how the same argument works today. Verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. You see, they were into giving. That's why they had all those altars. They would walk by and give a couple of bucks to Zeus and a couple of bucks to Athena, and they'd go over here to Mercury, and if they were going fishing, they'd go over and toss some into Neptune's thing. You know, they would take care of all of their little gods. You didn't want to offend anybody. And he says, not worship with men's hands as though he needed it. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't care about your little gold coins with Athena's likeness on them. He's not interested in any of that. He created it all. He could have began to quote scripture to them. He could have quoted the Old Testament to them. We don't know for sure. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The gold and silver in every mind and the fullness of it, it belongs to the Lord, he could have said to them. He said, since he gives, notice what he says. You talk about messing with their philosophy. He doesn't need anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. In other words, not only is he the creator, but he's the sustainer of the entire universe. He's the one that created everything that you're sitting on and everything that you are. He's the one that gave you breath of life. That goat over there, he made that too. 
their world's just been turned upside down. In, in about a handful of sentences, he has destroyed 400 years of Greek philosophy and thought. He's taken their whole religious system and turned it upside down. Are you, they're looking, are you trying to tell me there's just one God? And that when God created me, if he did that, he must have done that for a purpose. You see how it gets down to the heart of why we're here? If there's one God and he created everything, then that means by default he created me. What do I owe him? What does he want? How do I know him? He gives us life, breath, what we need. As James 1 says, he's the source of every good and perfect gift. It all comes from him. That He sustains all life. As Jesus was speaking there, as he began to talk and, and share with us, not only the Sermon on the Mount, but the Beatitudes, he, he reminds us that it's his goodness that sustains us. And so instead of worshiping the Creator, these guys have been worshiping everything but the Creator. They had left the unknown God unmarked, in essence. They had completely missed the one God. And so you can imagine their blood pressure is going up. Now he's going to go on. He's going to attack their governmental system as well. This is a pretty gutsy thing to do. You're, you know, you're in the enemy's turf. It's like two years ago, uh, Pastor Steve down at South Bay was invited to go to the Oxford Roundtable. And for those of you that, you know, are familiar with such things, the Oxford Roundtable is pretty much this in modern times. It's where all the brainiest people, you know, people like Stephen Hawking go there, that kind of thing. They go and they debate great pieces of what's going on in the world. Let's just talk about the state of science. And they do philosophy, religion, and science, generally speaking. He says, it's the craziest thing. These guys, you know, everybody there has an IQ of 174 or something, you know. It's, it's just nuts. Paul's in the middle of that environment. Here's this guy, he's been talking to various groups in Jewish synagogues and sharing with them the scriptures, and he just begins to let it fly. Verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. He's saying, you know what, you Greeks aren't all that special. See, by this time the Greeks had begun to wane, and the Romans had already taken over most of the known world. And before the Greeks, it was the Persians and the Medes. And so they're looking at him and they're kind of going, hmm, yeah, that's kind of true. We're not what we once were. You know, we keep making all these political allegiances and alliances and treaties with everybody. And he said, he's made every one of us out of the same in essence, rootstock, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And at that time, I know he was pointing up at the temple of Athena up on the hill. And by then, it was undoubtedly in disrepair. It had already been there for over 300 years. He was looking, you know, the temple up there is kind of looking a little haggard. Hey, look down there in the valley at the city that's down there. It's not looking so good either. That stuff doesn't last forever. It's got a pre-appointed time. The boundaries, you know, your kingdom was a lot bigger than it was at one point. A lot bigger than it is right now at one point in time. 
weren't you guys, you know, kind of the rulers of the world? (laughs) I can only imagine what he was saying. Weren't you the guys that actually fought the, you know, from at Sparta? What happened? And so they ask that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him so that he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of that divine nature like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art of man's devising. He said, you know what? There's a God that rules over you. It's not the Roman Caesar, because by then, uh, no doubt, the coin of the realm was the Roman coin, even though they were in a Greek province. They were distant beings at that time. I I love the way he quotes here, because Paul's Paul's actually quoting from Epimedes and from Aratus and Clinthius, who were two of the, or actually three of the most prominent philosophers of the day. He says, you know, you guys think that, for him, we live and move and have our being. You were talking about Greek philosophy. I'm telling you the reason you have that is because of the unknown God that you have the altar to. We're also his offspring. You thought that that was we are the offspring of the great Greek gods. No, you're the offspring of the one who made you in his own image, who created you and fashioned you. And so Paul was saying that in essence because we're all part of God's spiritual family, we're all of the same family. That would have been horrendous to a Greek. They believed even at that time, even though Rome ruled the world, the Greeks still controlled it. Because they had come up, and to some degree, when you go to college, you study philosophy, you still study these same great Greek philosophers. They're responsible largely for the Western thought that we have. And he's saying, no, they're really not controlling the world. There's a God that's bigger than them. And so, fashioned after God's own image, likeness in Adam and we from him. He goes on, the next thing he says as we begin to wrap this up tonight, that because of the grace of God, there's also a God that's your Savior. Now, this was crazy to them. Verse 30, and truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. So here he's telling them first that there's actually a creator God that's over all of their gods. That the gods that are on Mount Olympus, the gods, the temple up there that's to Athena, that's worthless. All of those things are gone. The money that you have, the, the, the Greek heritage you have, all the stuff that you hope and trust in, your minds, your ability to philosophize, your ability to think greater thoughts than other people, these new things that you're seeking after. Not only are these, he calls them times of ignorance, God overlooks, but now commands men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. In other words, he says, one day you guys are all going to answer to God, the unknown God. A little altar, that niche that you have there carved in the wall that has no name on it, just says unknown God. That God right there, one day you're going to have to answer to him. The one that you don't fully understand. 
For he has given assurance of all this by raising him from the dead. He says, the sign to you is the fact that Jesus Christ was seen alive after his death. After his burial, he was raised from the dead. And that's something you can't escape, because you have to remember at the time, the people who actually saw that were still alive on the earth. And many of them gave their life for that testimony. They said, no, we saw him. This isn't a guess. We didn't hear it from somebody else. We know because Scripture reminds us, we've already seen that here in the book of Acts, that there was one group of 500 at one time that saw the Lord Jesus and recognized him. So 500 people. Now I can tell you the sphere of influence of 500 individuals is huge. It's gigantic. So eyewitness account to someone else, and all of a sudden here in the Greek world, yeah, well, we kind of heard about something like that. But we really didn't believe it. Well, Paul was here to testify that the gods that you've been worshiping aren't up there in that temple. The government that you think is going to one day come back from the dead, that the Romans have already overthrown, isn't coming back from the dead. Your monetary system that you hope in, your thought you hope in, none of those things are going to do any good one day when you stand face to face with the God who created you. So what are you going to do? And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. He's standing on the, what the Romans called Mars Hill, and he says, they say to him, this is so different than anything we've ever heard. We want you to come back. Now, you would think, from what we've already heard, they would have said, you know what, you probably need to leave Athens right now while you still can. But it was so life-changing, the truth was being spoken to them, said, we need to hear more. Some of them mocked. Some people will always mock. And you have to be prepared for that. When you tell people the truth about who Jesus Christ is, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, there are going to be people, no, that's just that stupid Bible stuff. That's a bunch of stories. You know, that was a book that was written at least 2,000 years ago, and it was written by people who didn't have a brain in their pocket. And, you know, if you believe that, then you're dumber than a brick. And I will usually ask them, you know, a handful of scientific questions to just stimulate their interest. I said, so you really think that nothing became something, exploded, and somehow became more ordered without outside intervention? I don't know who's the dummy here, but I'm kind of guessing that can't happen. You know, things like that. Get them thinking. It's like, no, you actually believe some things that are far less probable than what I believe in Christ Jesus. I believe there's a creator God that created everything. Now, I can't explain to you everything he did. I can explain to you very few things that he did in its entirety, but what I believe makes just as much sense scientifically as what you claim to believe without God. So who has more faith, me or you? If you believe that man came from monkeys, you have a lot of faith. Because there aren't any man monkeys anywhere in the fossil record. There aren't any monkey man. There's a handful of teeth and stuff that have been found that they take and stick together and try and, you know, got one bone from two miles away that they stick with a couple of chimpanzee skeletons and make Lucy. We have those kind of things. But we don't have any big piles of bones someplace that shows all these people came, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people, look. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I can't explain that to you. But I know this. There are so many things that are irreducibly complex in our universe that my faith makes every bit as much sense as someone else's silly scientific theory. I know that chemicals do not order themselves and store information. It can't happen. It's absolutely impossible scientifically. And yet that is exactly what people believe. That somehow in some prior, primordial distant past that lightning struck some pool of chemicals that largely would have been things that would have killed all life forms that we know. And those things floated around for perhaps billions of years in component parts and somehow joined together and became a single-celled organism. That's insanity upon insanity. That's craziness of the nth degree. There are irreducibly complex parts of creation. They won't function without the other parts already being whole. For instance, your circulatory system. You can't just have a blood vessel over here without the heart and the kidneys and the liver and everything else to support it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work on a human scale. It doesn't work on a microscopic scale with a single cell. The same thing that Paul was using, we can use today. So you really believe that? That's your philosophy, but it doesn't make for really good science. You might want to rethink that. Where did that first cell come from? Where did that seed that formed the universe come from? How did nothing become something and explode? And all of a sudden, the vast order of the universe pops out from it. Craziness. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from them. And however, some men joined him and believed and among them was Dionysus, Areopagite. Uh, now, this is the guy who's on the council of the Areopagus. This is a guy who's sitting up there getting ready to judge. He's already won one of the judges to Christ. He's like, oh, he's got it going on. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so as he brings this incredible message, he says, you know what? There's a lot of things you don't have answers to for your philosophy. There are all kinds of things that you haven't been able to explain. You've been hashing over these secret things, these new things. You've been doing that for 400 years at this point in time since Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. Since, since Plato started his school and Aristotle took that over and then he goes on and spreads it through Socrates and all of these Greek philosophers... They never actually came up with answers to anything. They came up with more questions. Isn't that exactly what people do today? Because if you really talk to them, they don't know. Ask them simple questions. What happens when you die? Well, I think I become dirt. You know, when they say that, you've got them. Because your soul is non-material. You ever thought about what your dreams and thoughts and memories and stuff are comprised of? It's non-material. It doesn't have anything to do with chemicals. It's part of something that we can't explain. And we know that from all kinds of different reasoning positions. 
near-death experiences, people who have died, been gone, they're dead, and yet they come back and say they went someplace. Well, if all of those things were attached to the chemical systems and to the cells and all the functions of the human body, they would have ceased to exist instantaneously. would have been the same as the hard drive shutting down. And yet they're still there, including all the memories all the way back to childhood. It's because they're non-material. Because they're a part of you called your soul. And your soul doesn't have anything to do with a bunch of chemicals. Greeks didn't have an answer. People in school today don't actually have the answer. They still sit around debating it. The only answer is that there's a creator God. And he created man in his image. And as they were interested in those things, it opened the door for him to share the gospel. And, and I will tell you this, the, the same challenges face us today. And so we need to be, remember who we started with, like the Bereans, who searched the scriptures. You also have to search science textbooks and make sure that you're doing all that you can. I, I think the body of Christ sometimes settles for second or third best because we stop learning, because we stop thinking, because we stop seeking to apply some of the things that we know in a relevant way. Uh, one of the reasons that I, I read as much as I do, one of the reasons that I spend as much time studying as I do, is to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within me to a right-thinking mind. Now, I may not have all the answers, but I do have some that are just as good as any philosopher that's ever walked on the face of this earth. And so if I can open that door that way and then say, you know, what if I'm right? And I do this a lot. What if I'm right and you're wrong? You see, if you're right and I'm wrong, I lose nothing. But if I'm right and you're wrong, you spend eternity in hell. Get them thinking. Pondering. Get them digging. Be they an Epicurean or a Stoic or just a college kid from... Cal State San Bernardino. God has an answer. Amen? Dare to be bold. Use that godly wisdom to confront that worldly wisdom. Use the things of the Lord to fight a spiritual battle. We might reach some. Paul's going to use, we're going to see this several times. Matter of fact, he will record later in his writings that to the Greeks I became Greeks. We're seeing that right now. And to the Romans, I became a Roman, that I might win some. He studied what it was like to be a Roman. He studied what it was like to be a Greek. He prepared himself to speak to the culture of his day. He prepared himself to be relevant, in other words, to be able to talk to people where they were at, what they were thinking, where they were going, what they were doing. So important for us today. I think some of the reason that people have a tough time with the Jesus that we love and adore is because we haven't made him relevant to them. We, we haven't taken the time to say, you know what? My God's big enough to answer your questions about life, about the origins of the universe. You know, may not be able to give an answer for every question that they have, but there are some out there that are gifted at that. And we need to be prepared. Amen? Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the the wonder of your word. Lord, I would have loved to have been uh, a Greek in the corner, Lord, at that time where Paul was addressing this crowd and just to see the looks on their faces. Father, may we never lose that wonder in sharing our faith. Lord, we pray that the things that we say would bring you glory and honor and praise. Lord, help us to be unto the Greeks in our lives, Greeks and the Romans, Romans. Lord, to the school kids, just what they need. Lord, to the high schoolers, Lord, what they need. God, to those that we work with, uh, you know what you want to say to them. And Father God, we thank you that you use imperfect vessels like us to spread the gospel around the world. We pray that we'd have the excitement of Paul, Lord, the tenacity, uh, Lord, the, the effectiveness, Lord, all of these things that we see in the life of Paul. We pray that each component part of it would be part of our arsenal as we seek and save, Lord, because of your grace, those who do not know you. And so, God, we just pray that you'd anoint us to that task. Bless us, God. Get us safely home, safely back together again on Sunday. We love you. Thank you for the time tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 18 next week.